0: Hey, folks, Bob Main here with another episode of today's Survival Show, helping you harness the power of choice to live life the way you want to live it, on your own terms, and strengthen your resolve. Our goal is to make survival simple, not extreme, and if you're relatively new to this podcast and you're tuning in for the first time... You will find this is a voice of reason. I don't get into a whole lot of conspiracy theories. I don't get into a whole lot of tinfoil hat kind of stuff. I just keep things rooted in practical common sense. I like to keep it that way. And we talk about how to thrive today so that you can survive tomorrow. That's pretty much the main goal. And this is episode number 70 of today's survival show. Uh, I'm sorry, episode number 76 of today's survival show. Man, the older I get, the worse my memory gets. Can you relate to that? Anyway, uh, I've been doing a series on threat assessments and figuring out what's going on in our our area. Today, I want to sidestep from that just a little bit. I'll, I'll throw some things in there about threat assessment today. But I also want to cover, kind of cover some facts, some things for you to think about, some basic things that can go wrong. I want to talk to you about how things can go wrong. And I want to do a little myth busting today and destroy some common misconceptions about how disasters occur and how um, emergencies can happen and then I'll also kinda from there talk about what happens if you lose services uh, what happens if you lose the ability to obtain water and food and power and light and things like that so before I get into the topic I just want to say to all of you who have been listening and participating in the forum, thank you very much. I want to knock out a couple of announcements. It's only going to take me about 60 seconds. The website's todayssurvival.com. The uh, forum, if you go to todayssurvival.com, click the forum button. It'll get you to where you need to go. Join our forum. We have excellent like-minded people there. And, uh, you know, great minds talk about ideas and concepts. My mentor taught me small minds talk about things. Small minds talk about material possessions. Those are small-minded people. Average minds talk about what are other people doing to them today, right? Oh, did you hear what my boss did to me today? that That's what average minds talk about. But great minds talk about ideas and concepts to solve problems. Great minds talk about how to improve their life. And that's what you got on our forum. There's a lot of great minds on there. They want to share their knowledge with you. So uh, get involved in that. And don't forget about the SAC club, folks. Uh, I am going to add a new facet to it very shortly but uh, this is government of the people, by the people, and for the people. It doesn't matter what your political beliefs are, folks. Get involved in the Survival Activist Club, SAC Club, Survival Activists Club. Some forum members are donating some books, and uh, I've got another prize I'm going to add to it pretty soon. So there's going to be about five winners, and you are going to be able to get some good knowledge and some good benefit from what we're giving away. All you got to do, read the rules, go to the main page at todayssurvival.com, check out the SAC Club, Uh, it's on the forum as well don't forget to uh, participate in that and become a winner and that wraps up the announcements I like to keep that short and sweet you notice this is not a real commercial show folks I don't pack it with a bunch of ads I don't spend six minutes talking about sponsors before I get into the main topic and stuff like that Uh, this is not my full time job this is a hobby of mine I love doing this I learn as much from this as maybe you do from listening to this show And so it's something. And by the way, if you want to support the show, there is a donate button. This show exists completely on the generosity of listeners pay your own price folks if you feel like you get some benefit from it great you don't even have to if you don't want to it's not going to hurt my feelings if money is tight for you pay off the debts first don't donate to this show but if it's something that you feel like you can do and you want to there is a donate button on the front page and that's all i'll say about that Okay, let's get into a few facts about what occurs out there one disaster one threat is people that steal from us thieves so i guess i am going to throw a little bit of threat assessment in here today and let's talk, let's talk about people who th- steal from you let's talk about basic thieves the people who want to steal from you don't come waving some kind of a pirate flag all right? They don't give you any kind of a warning. And I found a lot of this information on Furfall's blog. If you haven't read Furfall's blog, check that out. I'm going to put a link to Furfall's blog in today's show notes. and Check that out. But they're not going to give you a warning, folks. They come like a thief in the night. They're sneaky. They're devious. You know, and, and, and also you get a lot of these internet commandos out there that think that people are going to start shooting at you from 200 yards away. This is how I'm going to get attacked, man. The zombies are going to come. A lot of people think, oh, the zombies are going to come. They're going to start shooting at me from 200 yards, so I've got to have my high-powered rifle so I can pick them off at 600 yards before they get to me. Come on, folks, let me bust that myth up. That's not how it's going to happen. Okay, they're going to wait till they're a lot closer to you than that. As I mentioned, a lot of internet commandos post a lot of junk on the internet in chat rooms and forums and things, thinking that they're going to end up fighting some kind of a Red Dawn kind of war. Red Dawn was a great movie, folks, but in reality, in all likelihood, you're not going to be attacked from 200 yards away. I don't even think you're going to be invaded by some kind of a military or militia. If the stink hits the fan, folks, I like to think that we're more likely to be standing shoulder to shoulder with our military men and women, not standing across the field from them. And the odds are very much against a long-distance encounter. Any of you have any idea what the average uh, self-defense shooting takes what's the distance of the average self-defense shooting with a handgun it's about three to five yards maximum and you know what with a rifle or shotgun it's typically between about 18 and 40 yards if you don't believe me look it up so the chances of you having to pick somebody off, pick off the zombies, at 200 yards, just not likely. I'm not trying to pick on those of you that have AR-15s and those of you who are pretty good shots at 300 yards. I'm not picking on you at all. It's, it's okay if you want to develop that kind of proficiency with your weapon and have that kind of you know, accuracy with it. That's fine. I'm just saying it's probably not the most likely. The people who want to attack you are also not going to come riding on loud Harley-Davidson's. They're not going to be dressed up in orange in a convict suit that just got out of prison. Okay? I mean, they're not going to let you identify them that easy. They're also not going to be wearing chains around their necks or leather jackets and tattoos everywhere. Most crime scene investigators report that victims will tell the investigator, Hey, well, he looked just like a normal guy. He was dressed well. He wasn't very conspicuous. I didn't know that he had the potential to commit that much violence against me. Folks, don't expect an attack to come at you like it does in the movies. That's Hollywood. That's made for movies. That's made for entertainment. That's not usually the way that it happens. Okay? And it doesn't matter if you're an ex-Navy SEAL or you used to be on a SWAT team or, or you think you're some kind of a Rambo kind of person. Nobody really has a, a sixth sense that's going to tell you that there's some guy pointing a gun at your back when you're out there trying to fix your fence or take out your garbage or carrying your groceries into the house. So if you live in the country or on a farm, think about that kind of stuff and and since I'm on the subject now of people who live out in rural areas and I grew up in a rural area I grew up on a hobby farm one of the things that we found out is one of the best security systems that you can have if you live out in the country is a dog a good dog Okay, the problem is though is that dogs can get killed and poisoned and often do get killed and poisoned. So even though they're a part of your security, don't rely on them completely. But they're excellent warning signs. And there are a lot of stories of people who have had multiple dogs poisoned all at once during a raid on someone's property. And I'm in the security business, folks. I'm in the uh, the home security business. It's one of, the, one of the facets of the job I do. I work for an electronics manufacturer in the security field. Now we make a large uh, variety of products. But one of them that we make is security alarm systems. And I talk to a lot of people that either have been broken into or I talk to a lot of people who have investigated break-ins. And so many people report that the dogs didn't get the job done. Not completely. So you've got to have another layer of protection and I strongly recommend a home security system. People who live in the country might be indeed safer when it comes to small time robberies and burglaries. But that same person in the country is probably more likely to be exposed to extremely violent home robberies. And just ask some of the members of our forum. There's been some people who on our forum who have been victim of that, and they've put that information on the forum. You should read that. All right. my, my My experience in the security business has also taught me two things. There's two things that attackers and robbers and burglars don't like. If you're taking notes, jot this down. Two things burglars don't like. Number one, they don't like to be seen. Number two, they don't like to be heard. They don't like to be seen, and they don't like to be heard. So when they assault a country home or a farm, they're usually going to stay there for hours or days torturing the owners. That's the point that I want to make. They know that if they're in the country, one of the reasons why uh, why rural people are so subject to more violent crimes is because burglars know and, and attackers know that it's harder for people to see them or hear them when they're in the country. So getting back to what I said, they don't like to be seen or heard. So they'll stay there. They're in the country, they're going to stay there for hours. And it's happened, and it's happened many times. So think about that for those of you who live in the country. Now, if you live in the big city, big cities aren't any safer either. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to say you're safer in the big city. Not by any means. Okay, Those of us who live in cities, we have to face things like kidnappings and robberies and getting shot for the money in our pocket and stuff like that and and getting killed for a $70 pair of tennis shoes that we might be wearing all kinds of stuff like that so you might be thinking "All right, well what's your point Bob what do I do well I tell you if I had to make a choice country or the city I'll, I'll go back to the country I long to be back in the country folks it's how I grew up I grew up a country kid I grew up a rural kid. I grew up where the nearest neighbor was over a quarter of a mile away down a gravel road. And that's what I long to get back to. The concrete jungle, I don't like. It's dangerous, and it's no fun at all. So I would suggest, if possible, stay away from the big cities as much as you can. But if you do live in the big cities, try to organize your neighborhood. Try to organize your neighborhood if you live in the big cities, even if it's just a few of you in your neighborhood. Now, when I say big cities, I'm also talking about large suburbs next to big cities, like I live in Frisco, Texas. Frisco, Texas is over 100,000 people. It's a large suburb near a very large city, the eighth largest uh, metropolitan area in the United States, which is Dallas-Fort Worth. Organize your neighborhood, folks, even if it's just a few of you. Even if it's just a few of you in your neighborhood that get together, that's better than nothing at all. The town I grew up in was a real small town, 2,200 people. 90% of them were farmers. And we were all very close knit people. And that taught me at an early age the power of people that are organized and that know each other. We were a very close knit group of 2,200 people. Everybody knew what everybody was doing. And I got to tell you, that's kind of frustrating. All right, because we also liked our privacy. And one of the problems that you have in real small towns, sometimes you don't have the privacy that you have in big cities. When everybody knows what you're doing, that can be kind of frustrating. But the benefit of that is we could still look out for each other very effectively. And by living in a small town community or a small subdivision, if you have friends or family that are like-minded and think like you do, you can form a small community and you can feed off of each other and you can pool your resources okay as opposed to living in a big city if you live in a big city you might think that that having neighbors within shouting distance means that you completely lose your privacy I don't think so a lot of people in big cities like to keep to themselves so don't automatically think that if you live in a big city you're gonna lose your privacy and that's a part of your survival that you're gonna lose not necessarily so but it can work against you right but think about this it's the price you have to pay if you want to have uh, somebody uh, help you if you ever need it Okay? Losing your privacy is is kind of the price you have to pay if you do organize and you do form groups. You might think, well, you know, I'm going to lose a little bit of sur- uh, privacy. And I see a lot of survivalists on the internet posting stuff on forums like, I don't ever want to become part of a group. I don't ever want to organize because I don't want anybody knowing what I have or what I do to prepare. Right? And they have this paranoid attitude about themselves. Oh, I just don't want anybody to know. I think losing a little bit of that privacy is sometimes, just a little bit of it, is a good price to pay if they are like-minded people that you trust and you can organize and you can use your resources together to fight off any disaster that may come your way. If you want someone to help you, if you ever need it, you have to know them, you have to have some kind of a relationship with them, folks. So to those of you that believe you're never going to need any help from anyone, because you got your rifle in your hand, and you're scanning the sc- the horizon with your scope on your rifle every five minutes, you got your first aid kit, you got an ammo can, a few MREs in your backpacks and in your bug out bags, and that's all you're ever going to need get real folks you can't go it alone and in most emergencies you're not going to be able to go it alone and most of the people who survive through disasters are those who have a good deal of help that's all the point i want to make on that you might you might disagree and it's okay to disagree folks if you got some disagreements with things i say hey this is a podcast and my opinion sneaks out every once in a while have a good basis for disagreeing with me and send me a comment And let me just go ahead and and take a little sidetrack here from this podcast and say, folks, I encourage comments. I encourage constructive criticism, and I encourage comments. So go ahead and send it on. There's a comment section in the blog, or jump on the forum and uh, and put a post there. There's a section in the forum for comments on shows that I do. Okay, now, let me move to the next topic. I want to talk about services. No matter what type of disaster that you're involved in, More than likely, services are going to suffer in quality, and they're going to suffer in availability. And they might even disappear altogether. And you've heard this many times, but I'm going to say it again. Analyze the possible stink-hit-the-fan scenarios that you could end up facing and determine which services in your area could be hit and affected by that stink-hit-the-fan situation. Think about what the most likely scenario is. Right? But also, I want to encourage you to think outside of the box. Nothing ever goes according to plan, folks. One thing to remember about your survival plans is nothing is ever going to go according to plan. I mean, you know, this is kind of like even a football game. Let me use a sports analogy here. Uh, for those, I know I have international listeners, so for those of you who listen internationally, you might not relate if you don't follow American football. But, you know, the coach makes a game plan. How many times does the game actually go exactly according to his game plan? Hardly ever. The same thing is going to happen to you uh, if you're trying to mitigate the impact of the disaster that just hit you. You may have a very carefully set of plans laid out, but the best laid plans often go astray, as we all know. And we've heard that bazillions of times. So have backup plans. Have a plan B and have a plan C. And think about what's likely to affect you. Is it a hurricane? Is it a wildfire? Is it a flood or a tornado? All right? Even nowadays, folks, a terrorist attack is not so far-fetched anymore, is it? Especially since 9-11 and since what we've seen lately in the last three or four years. Now let's talk about some consequences of not having any services available to you. Food, water, emergency care services, things like that. If there's no power for a long period of time, then you need to do something about all the meat you have in your freezer, for example. Okay, If you're storing a lot of food in your freezer, can you dehydrate it or can you can it? Here's two skills that I'm not good enough at. And here's a couple of areas that I want to seriously improve. I want to seriously improve my canning skills and my dehydrating skills. We have a lot of people who listen to this show that are very good at it. And one of my goals this year is to actually get started doing that and get fairly decent at it. My mother used to can like crazy. And I'm going to solicit a lot of her advice her advice too. Because I'm sure that all those years of canning, there's a lot that she can share with me as well. Okay? You have to think about what kind of supplies do you need for dehydrating and canning your uh, your meat. If you store um, all of the stuff that you need uh, for canning and, and, and freeze drying and things like that, how much room is it going to take? Okay, If you put information like that, if you put all your recipes and things like that on a computer, what happens if there's no power? You can't turn your computer on, but you want to start canning some of the stuff in your freezer. Do you also have it in a binder? Uh, have you made a survival binder folks? If there's no power your computers are not likely to work. You, you could be left with just the uh, the battery that you have in your laptop and that's it. And once that's gone you may not have a way to power your computer. Yeah maybe you could go plug it out into the uh, cigarette lighter DC power of your car but even that's limited. All right, When your car runs out of gas now you can't run your laptop computer off of the, the DC power in your car anymore and you're kind of stuck. Have you printed out all kinds of information and made a survival binder in print form, ladies and gentlemen. I don't care if you have to go out and buy a thick four-inch binder. You're probably going to need all that space. And you've heard me mention many times, you know, keep important information printed out in a binder, even recipes, even recipes for cooking food, even recipes for canning, including all your maps and all your plans and everything. So that's some of the consequences of not having any power. Now let me talk about water. Okay, An often discussed survival topic. I'm going to give a little bit of a different twist to water right now. Okay, Most people can't survive very long without water. We all know that. And if you're in an urban area, if you're in the city, you might find that the water could be a very poor quality if a disaster happens. And in that case, you're going to have to learn to make good use and own a good water filter. Now, you might be asking the question, well, what if there's no water at all? Okay, Bob, I got the filter, but what if there's no water at all? And that's actually a legitimate concern. I mean, consider a large scale disaster in a city, and and maybe it could be several hundred square miles large. In a large city, they could run out of bottled water in minutes. And this is why water storage is so important. And having a way to purify water that you can obtain is so important. So follow the rules of water storage. I would say that water should be second on your list of priorities. Your, your list of survival priorities, storing water should be number two. What's number one? Getting and staying out of debt. Let me say that again, getting and staying out of debt. I'll, I'll explain more why I think that should be number one on your list a little later. But number two, water storage. Uh, have a gallon of water per person in your house per day. I got three people in my household, me and my wife and my son. I need three gallons of water per day. So if I want to have 30 days worth of water, I'm going to have to have 90 gallons. Please set a goal for having at least a week's worth, folks. I firmly believe that in most disasters, not all, but in most, you may be able to, at least within a week, obtain water that you can at least purify. So if you have a week's worth of water, that's the bare minimum that you should have. Again, the bare minimum. Uh, when I grew up, I grew up with well water. And we, we had a well on our property almost the whole time that I was growing up as a kid. And recently, when, uh, when my family and I lived in Oklahoma, we, had, we were back on well water again because we were out in the country and uh, we had the ability to go ahead and, uh, and install our own well. If you can build a well, if you have that ability, do so. But you also have to protect it. All right. Now let's talk about protecting a well. Since I'm on this subject of well water, some things I learned in owning wells and growing up with them and so forth. Um, new wells and wells that are that are bacteriologically contaminated need to be disinfected in certain ways. And, and this is important stuff that you need to know if, if, in, in terms of disinfecting a well. If you're new to having a well. Uh, Make good notes on this those of you who have had well water for a long time I think you probably know this but I'm gonna go ahead and review it anyway disinfecting your well Okay, you need to prepare a chlorine solution and basically mix one volume of household laundry bleach That's all you need just Clorox mix one unit of bleach with a hundred units of water all right make sure you use pure bleach don't use the kind of bleach with additives in it. Don't use the fresh scent stuff. Use the original formula stuff. And let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Mix one gallon of bleach with 100 gallons of water. Okay? One gallon of bleach with 100 gallons of water. That gives you your 1 to 100 ratio that I was talking about earlier. Make enough of that to meet or exceed the total volume of your well. All right? All right? make enough of that to meet or exceed the total volume of your well now one of the ways that we used to do it is we used to make that 1 to 100 mixture uh, 25 gallons at a time used to make them in garbage cans when I was a kid we used to get big garbage cans and we used to make the, uh, the mixture the bleach and water mixture to clean out our well we used to do it in huge 25 gallon uh, uh, garbage cans maybe there were 50 I can't remember how big those things were uh, when I was a kid everything looked big Okay. So once you got your chlorine and water mixture, the next step is uh, take the cap off your well and pour the entire bleach and water mixture into the well in one continuous motion, one continuous fast pour. So if you're going to, you know, if you got 100 gallons that you're going into, you're dumping in your well, do it as quickly as possible and in one continuous pour if you can. Then number 3, rinse down all the sides of the well casing. Uh, with a garden hose for about five to ten minutes. Okay, and make sure your hose is connected to your well. You know, you're, you're, you're chlorinating your well, make sure your hose is connected to it. What you're doing here is you're circulating the chlorine solution throughout the whole water system, throughout the whole water system of your well. So you're ensuring that you're disinfecting the whole thing. Step four, disinfect the, uh, the plumbing system in your house okay the way you disinfect the plumbing system in your house if you have a well is you can turn on each of your water taps until you smell a bleach smell coming out of the water as soon as you smell a bleach smell coming out of your faucet turn it off okay also by the way go turn off the heating element in your water heater okay save some energy while you're doing this all right if you have a water softener bypass that okay um by doing this, by bringing by opening up your faucets and opening up your taps until you hear till you smell, excuse me, a little bit of bleach coming out of it. Now you've ensured that the chlorine solution that you made has made itself from the well into your entire plumbing system disinfecting that too. After you get to that point, let the chlorine solution remain in your entire system for 12 hours minimum. We used to do it for a whole day. All right, so those days were not much fun uh, going without the fresh water for 24 hours, but it was a small price to pay to have a good, clean, disinfected well. Okay, after 24 hours, pump all the chlorine solution out of the well by just taking a garden hose and running the water to an area where the chlorine is not going to do any damage. So just hook up a garden hose in the side of your house and uh, find an area. Remember, the chlorine is going kill, to kill grass and stuff like that. So try to find an area where you can dump all that, where you can you know, drain all that chlorine water out of the system and, uh, and then you know, begin hosing, begin using the hose to get it all out. One thing I want to warn you about is don't dump all that chlorine solution into your private septic system. And if you happen to be on public sewer, check with the city before you start dumping it into the sewer system. Pump that water until you can no longer detect any chlorine smell. So you got the garden hose hooked up to the faucet and you're pumping out all that chlorine solution that's in your well and in your plumbing system, go smell it every once in a while and keep running it until you don't smell any more chlorine at all. And I'd suggest you go to every cold water tap that you have on the outside of your house and do that. So you, cause you, so you make sure you get all that chlorine solution out of each tap. Uh, by this time, y- your well and your plumbing system should be pretty well disinfected. Uh, take a water sample, go get it tested, just make sure that there's no bacteria in it. But it's pretty simple. Uh, It's not that difficult to do, and, uh, you know, doing it once a month, I'd say, would probably be a a good thing. Uh, At least I would do it once every 60 days, keeping that disinfected, part of a survival skill if you have well water. Okay, I don't think I forgot anything there, but if I did, if some of you who are uh, currently on well water right now, and I messed up, forgot something, set me straight, send me a comment, or put a, uh, a comment on the forum. But I wanted to throw a little bit of of that in there since we're talking about well water and stuff like that. I wanted to give you some tips on uh, disinfecting your well or remind you of some things maybe you forgot. Make water near the top of your survival priority list. Another thing to consider is water also might become a very valuable and sought-after commodity after a disaster. It could be worth some high trade value. Think about that. If you are the source of good, clean water, you may have a commodity on your hands. Um, I would say saving water comes before accumulating more firearms or more medicines. And it it should even come before food. Make food number three on your list. Make shelter number four. Water, food, and shelter. But get out of debt number one. Again, I'll talk to you about that later. But save as much water as you possibly can. Okay. If you don't have a well, uh, buy water in plastic bottles. Wait till it's on sale. Uh, get it in the, in three liter bottles if you can, and um, you know keep them keep them well stored, preferably uh, in a place where you know it's. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't keep them in a hot place. I'd keep them in a cool place, uh, preferably inside of a uh, black garbage bag if you can to keep it away from sunlight. Uh, the water is going to pick up some of the plastic taste after a few months if you're putting it in plastic bottles. Now, if you're buying already bottled water that's brand new and you're buying it in the plastic bottles, you probably it would have you'd have to store it for a really really long time for it to pick up some of the plastic taste from that. But if you're kind of the person that's refilling milk jugs and things like that, that's not typically advisable. But if you're doing that, you're going to have to make sure you store it properly and probably rotate it a lot. The key for water storage, if you're in the city and you don't have well or you don't have some some kind of a natural water supply the key for water storage is rotation 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 okay and in closing on this subject i want you to think about something even an economical crash if that's a disaster that you're preparing for, and of course, a lot of us right now could be preparing for the economy to crumble because uh, the way things are going now, it looks like that's probably inevitable at some point. Even an economical collapse can cause problems with the water supply. It'll cause problems with the water company, which reduces their ability to maintain good, uh, safe, available drinking and usable water. That water company is going to go into cost-cutting mode, just like anybody else. And then they're going to cut the services as well. And it's always the little guy that has to pay for it. It's always the little guy that, gets, that suffers. The people, those of us who are dependent on a city water supply. And, and the same would go for floods or chemical or biological attacks. Water requires a lot of delicate care. And it's going to suffer, no doubt, when the stink hits the fan in one way or another. So, a few thoughts there on water that I wanted to share with you and uh, give you some things to think about. Now, let's talk about power. That's another service that often is going to be lost in a disaster Let me start with generators. Generators are great if you can afford one. I would not say that you should make a generator first on your priority list, but if you can afford one and you can store the gas necessary to run the generator, have at it. That's terrific. Now, when loss of power occurs, the real problem starts when you go more than even just a few hours without light. Think about that. Think about what it's like when you go just more than a, a three or four hours without light okay without powers the days get a lot shorter don't they once the Sun sets there's not much you can do maybe you can work around the house a little bit uh, but if you don't you know as long as you can do work without needing any power tools you're fine crime also increases when there's no power when the lights go out the criminals come out Alright, so whenever you're going somewhere in a blackout, make sure you got a flashlight, make sure you got your gun, make sure you're ready. I'm going to talk about flashlights in a little bit too, since we're on this subject. But being in a city without light, for those of you who live in the city, I'm talking to you right now, being in a city area without light can be real depressing after a while too. And when you have loved ones around you, uh, blackouts are are not quite as bad because you've got people around you, but still, it's, it's hard for a family to function whenever you don't have any power. It's just flat out simple. Go shut the power off in your house one day for about three or four hours and just watch people freak out. Just do it unexpectedly. Okay? See what happens. See how people react. See what people do. This is why as many battery-powered devices that you can have and and two-way radios that use battery power to be able to communicate with people and stuff, the more of that and the more flashlights, the more good quality flashlights that you can have and spare batteries and so forth and uh, batteries that are rechargeable that you've charged in advance, things like that. Uh, that That's so critical. Flashlights. Now, since I'm talking about the loss of power, let me talk about flashlights. You never have enough flashlights. I'm a firm believer that flashlights are like $100 bills. I'm serious. Flashlights are like $100 bills. You never have enough of them. Have several good quality LED flashlights. They're not very expensive. They're worth their weight in gold if there's no power. A powerful flashlight is also necessary. Get yourself also have one of those big, huge, powerful ones. Alright? Something like a big mag light or something, or one of those big, huge surefire lights. Especially if you have to if you live out in the country and you gotta check your property. Alright, but for more of the regular stuff, like making food and stuff, uh, going to the bathroom, or doing stuff around the house, uh, you may also want to get one of those LED headlamps. Those headlamps that you strap on, uh, that are LED, battery powered, those things are great. Those things can be lifesavers. Even if there's not a disaster, those LED headlamps come into uh, they come they're, they're very handy. They're great for working on stuff in in dark places. Again, even if there's no disaster, keeping your hands free while having a light is a huge advantage. Disaster or no advantage, or disaster or no di- disaster. Okay, rechargeable batteries for your lights are a must or else you're going to end up uh, going broke when there's no power buying batteries I do recommend though that you have is is store as many batteries as you possibly can Uh, but the rechargeable batteries, nickel metal hydride batteries have the uh, the disadvantage of losing power over a long period of time as well when you're storing them so keep that in mind Okay? But if there's a long-term power outage, in my opinion, in my humble opinion, the two most important things to have would be, number one, the obvious, a generator if you can afford it. And if you have the gas to run it. It's not going to be much fun if you have to carry all the food out of your fridge to a friend or a relative's house if there's a disaster. So if you can have a generator, have a generator. The second would be solar-powered battery chargers. Solar-powered battery chargers. They're relatively inexpensive, and uh, do yourself a favor and, and get one or two solar power, solar-powered battery chargers. I'm having a hard time with that word right now. I'm not quite sure why. Even if they don't charge as good as regular battery chargers, uh, if there's you know if there's no power and that's all you've got, then that's all you've got. Do what you can with what you have wherever you are, right? Okay, another good thing to have is one of those Eton hand crank radios. And also don't forget uh, your car. Don't forget about your car. Your automobile can be an excellent source of power temporarily. As long as there's gas in your car, your car is a generator. You got an alternator in and a battery in your car, folks. And as long as you can run your car, you can keep your batteries your car battery recharged the alternator does that for you so you kinda have a, a portable miniature generator in your vehicle again as long as you've got gas you got that DC power supply in your car make sure you have a DC power inverter uh, and, uh, and keep one of those in your emergency bag and in your bug out bag those things can really save you those things have saved me a couple of times uh, even if it was a minor disaster uh, those things saved me I was able to run a uh, an air compressor and uh, I was able to change a flat tire, and I was able to actually pump up a tire, actually, not change it. I was actually able to pump up a tire so I could get to a tire repair shop because I had a DC power inverter. I had At that time, I had an air compressor that didn't run off the DC power. It just needed AC. So that power inverter helped me a great deal. and was I was able to pump up the tire and get to uh, a place that was about three miles down the road that could fix my tire. But there's all kinds of uses for those things. So don't forget about your car also or all of your vehicles when the power goes out. Now, food. Okay, sorry for the distraction there, folks. I had to take a little business call. I want to talk about food and first aid. Uh, And the loss of uh, food services and medical services, and then I'm going to close the show. As far as food, the points you want to look for in your food storage um, are the things that, you know, in order of importance, the things that I want to share with you when you're putting away food is, first of all, uh, put away as much stuff as you can that does not need to be refrigerated. That might sound like some common sense, but it's amazing how many folks don't really spend, you know, when when I talk to people and ask them questions about their food storage, a lot of people talk about stuff that they've got in their freezer and in their refrigerator. How about how about what do you have that doesn't require? I mean, if you got no power, let's face it. You know, we just got done talking about what's going to happen. All right, put together high-calorie, high-nutritious uh, food. And the reason I say high calorie is you could quite often be in a situation where you're expending a lot of energy. Uh, You may have to be fixing a lot of things after a disaster. Uh, There there could be a lot of physical activity that you're going to have to undertake after some kind of an emergency. You're going to need calories. You're going to need energy. You're going to need high nutrition. Uh, Store stuff that has a long shelf life. Try to store stuff that has a shelf life between one to five years. Store stuff you like to eat. You know, I'll go ahead and I'll repeat the old mantra. uh, Store what you eat, eat what you store. You know, I mean, that's... I didn't obviously... Thousands and thousands of people in survival have said that because it makes sense. So don't put away stuff that you're not going to want to eat that you think is repulsive. Uh, That's certainly after an emergency. You don't want to have to be faced with eating food that you think is hideous. Also try to store as much stuff that doesn't need to be mixed with water. If you can, if you can get away with it, store some stuff that doesn't have to be, doesn't need to have water added to it. It's okay if it's got water in it and it's able to be stored, but try to store stuff that doesn't have, doesn't need to have water uh, to be added to it, and also stuff that doesn't need to be cooked. All right, and what I'm getting at here is a lot of canned meats is, is good, uh, canned tuna, canned uh, uh, salmon, stuff like that. I, I absolutely love canned tuna, and I, and I like a lot of canned chicken and one of the things about canned meats is they already have some water in them so I'll be doing two things at once I'll be nourishing my body eating food and I'll also be putting water in my system I'll be hydrating myself when I eat those canned meats so think about that you kinda get two benefits in one there don't forget about canned vegetables uh, dried pasta uh, dehydrated soups and things like that now of course you gotta add water to the soups but usually they don't take too much water You know, put away stuff like uh, obviously the typical rice and beans uh, that most survivalists like to put away. Uh, The reason I like canned food so well is it has a very long shelf life. And like I said, most of the time they give you they give you water as well. You don't have to add anything to them to be able to eat them. Okay, just be careful you don't dent the can. By the way, Um, denting the can can cause some air to get inside and ruin the meat. So think about that. Uh, try to store them where they're not going to get damaged. And, uh, you know, talking about that, another reason I like canned tuna is because you can do things, all kinds of things with tuna. You can mix it with uh, frozen vegetables. You can mix it with rice. Uh, all kinds of things that you can do with it and, uh, and make it taste fairly decent if you don't like the, the taste of pure tuna. And don't forget about canned fruits uh, and even canned nuts. And, of course, those of us with gardens, uh, you know, do I really need to get into that? I think we all know that that a garden should be a top priority, even if it's a small garden. Even if you're just growing some tomato plants and potatoes. You know, something simple. Uh, Just some simple basics like that in a a disaster can go a long, long way, especially if it's all you got for a few days. And, of course, fruit trees. Uh, If you already have fruit trees, great. Uh, If not, get fruit trees uh, started. And by no means am I an expert gardener, but I do realize the importance of having the basics. And I do understand that it's not too hard just to grow some basic uh, food-producing plants for yourself. And those of you, I know there's a lot of you who listen to this show that also have gardens and also have animals as well. We got one member just recently built a chicken coop and raising chickens. That's awesome. I mean, that's just... uh, Those types of things are just irreplaceable uh, after a disaster, let me tell you. Okay? Now, first aid. I promised I I would talk about first aid and what to do if there's no medical services. This is really easy. This is going to be really easy for me to give you some first aid advice, all right? Turn this podcast off and go listen to episode 69. My interview with Ghost Rider from our forum. We dedicated the whole show to first aid and building your own first aid kits pretty easy you'll love that episode go listen to that and that will help you mitigate the problem if there's no health and medical services available in your area okay there's also some good publications out there when there's where there's no dentist and where there's no doctor Uh, check our forum there's been some posts recently made about that and some good information shared Okay, now, in closing, a few slots I want to share with you about health and fitness, and then I'm going to wrap this up. I don't want this podcast to get too long. But as far as health, go to your doctor now, and whatever health problems you've got, if they're fixable, get them fixed now. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Go to the dentist. Make sure you get your your teeth taken care of. Go to the doctor. uh, Get your checkups. Do the the stuff that we all know that we should do. You know, remember, the doctors are not going to be very well available uh, or very available at all after the stink hits the fan. And if they are available, it's going to be very, very difficult to get any quality care out of them. Trust me okay and if you haven't already establish an exercise program work out a few times a week there's just so much benefit that you can get from that for even you know even if you just do it a a couple of times a week Uh, you know you've heard me talk about my my workouts I'm not gonna you know harp on that too much but uh... get in some aerobics and a little bit of lightweight lifting or functional fitness and stuff like that uh... you know maybe working with a boxing bag or something like that You know, and and kettlebells, or even if you're just using, uh, you know, lightweight uh, four-pound exercise balls and things like that. Just do something to stay active. I mean, you know, whatever you do, uh, the idea is to have a fit and healthy body. I mean, there's no use sharpening your skills and being able to shoot uh, half-inch groups at 100 yards with your rifle if you can't even run 100 yards without falling over dead. I mean, shooting's fun. I love to shoot. And and working out sometimes is not all that much fun. But I realize that being fit is just as important as my ability to be able to shoot something, okay? So that's kind of what I'm talking about. You know, if you're the kind of person that spends uh, three hours a week on your shooting skills, but you got no time to devote to your health and your body, uh, you could find yourself seriously lacking. And uh, if you've got to carry your bug out bag, if you have to carry a kid uh, several several hundred yards or or a quarter mile or half a mile or a mile or whatever after a disaster, what are you going to do? What are you going to do if you're not in shape to do that? Okay? Or what if you have to run away from a riot? Or what if you have to run away from some kind of a, a gunfight attack or something like that while you're carrying your, your bug out bag? Okay, And this applies just for life in general. you know, Before or after the stink hits the fan. You have to know now that you are in good enough shape to be able to handle it. Okay? And so enough said on that. And I'm going to go ahead and bring this show to a close. In the next episode i'm going to talk a few things uh, talk about a few subjects like house fires and uh, and stuff like that and a few things that could happen locally and how to deal with them if they happen in your house but for now thank you for listening to episode number 76 and listen to me talk about what to do if you lose some services after a stink hits the fan situation and thank you for letting me do a little bit of myth-busting there in the beginning of, beginning of the podcast about how people may attack you and so forth. So, my name is Bob Maine. This is episode number 76 of today's Survival Show, where it was my goal in doing this show to help you harness the power of choice to live life the way you want to live it. Whether you're attacked or whether a disaster comes in and wipes out the services in your area, you will be prepared. Our goal is to make survival simple, not extreme. And as Teddy Roosevelt once said, do what you can with whatever you have, wherever you are. Thanks for listening to the show, folks. I'll catch you next time. Bye-bye.